Well, I usually sing if this were a Stephen King, but I guess I'll rhyme because it's Anderson time. <laughs> that is not what I meant to do. <laughs> I am not going to do a rhyming bit at the beginning of every one of these. No, you don't need to make more work for yourself. No. Uh, but you are a but master. But I do like to sing on Kings of King, yeah. 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 I'm a master of shitty podcast intros. <clears throat> hey. And we're indeed talking about the master here on Anders Sons. It's a PTA day, folks. Woo! I'm Michael Swaim. I'm Abe Epperson. And we do this is what we do. This is what Anderson's does. You know, either yeah. we talk about Wes Anderson or we talk about Paul Thomas Anderson. And this time we're talking about 2012. We're getting close to the end here. Uh we got probably yeah, and, six more or something. I don't know. I haven't counted. And the, interestingly we're going to enter territory where I start to agree with Abe that Wes Anderson has completely lost it. And uh, although I really like Fantastic Mr. Fox, our last one, um, and then PTA, I'm, a, I'm ignorant of. After this movie, I fell off. I have not seen Phantom Thread. I have not seen Licorice Pizza. I have not seen the other one. Uh, so it'll be untrod territory. Licorice Pizza, I believe, was his last one, but he's got one coming up soon. Uh, Inherent Vice is the one I would Oh, Inherent Vice seen. is before Phantom Thread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <clears throat> it looks like after this episode, if you're into looking to the future, we'll be talking Moonrise Kingdom. That also came out in 2012. Oh, I still like that one. Yeah. I didn't care for that one. <laughs> I know. We know. We know. We know how you are. I can't, I can't voice my opinion anymore you can't force on my it. own goddamn show. Yeah, it's Budapest fine. Hotel. It's fine. Uh, yeah, I, I'm glad people do enjoy it. I'm just, it's not for me. And that's all that I need to say about it. His However, name is Anderson. So that we're locked in. There was no other way to do the podcast. <laughs> well, it's a law. We could have done, uh, Paul W.S. Anderson. A W.S. Yeah. Ooh. People often ask if we're going to cover Mortal Kombat movies. All right. We'll that see. Would be great. Maybe if we're desperate. <laughs> if we're desperate, baby, let's go. Maybe some Venus content. Yeah. But speaking of movies that really do work on me. Uh, mm. fuck this movie rules, dude. Yeah, you watched it last night. Yes, right? I did. Captivating. I, I loved it when I first saw it. I think I've seen it. This is the third time I've seen it. And man, oh man, it just the acting is incredible. Well, this you people will know what a high compliment this is. It feels like a Coen Brothers movie to me. It's like a Coen Brothers movie, but it's of a different beat. Like Coen Brothers are It's its own thing. It's its own thing, but I mean, I yeah. hold it in as high esteem. As high esteem. Weirdly, the first time I saw it, I thought it was boring, and I think that's because it's such a character study. It cares about right. character more than plot. Which And uh Yeah. Yeah. You kind of notice feel, like slow paced, but it's slow paced like 2001 is slow paced, meaning it's correct. It's pace is correct. I need to accommodate it. It's paced like Red Dead Redemption 2 is paced. Right. You got to get on its speed. It's something where it's interesting because like Boogie Nights feels like just like a, um, you know, kind of like a biopic or like a mm -hmm. um, like something where it's just like a slice of time. And we've seen those movies all the time, you know, like we see those uh, sweeping kind of epics of ensembles that follow one character or, you know, a few characters through as they navigate like a specific time or a city or whatever. Those have like a kind of format. You start to realize around like, or it took me around the master, I think, where it's just like, it's a little bit of Magnolia. It's in all of his films, really. PTA doesn't seem to make a film that, like, as you mentioned with the Coen brothers, like have things that are connected and intentional all the time. Like he definitely does that. 
but it's always mixed with stuff that just feels like instinct, like he's shooting from the hip. And I'd say that that's a like he's never changed or, you know, like kind of wavered from that. It's been there the whole time. This feeling of what's that scene for? Uh, Character, really. It's just a good scene I wanted to have. And if people don't know, in screenwriting class, character growth is a cop out answer. That's what you say when the scene doesn't fulfill a functional purpose. Uh, Well, maybe it's for character growth, you know, and then you get clerks, which is only character growth. Right. Uh, (laughs) And so... Like all rules, I think it's made to be broken. This is a movie that proves that character growth is a perfectly valid reason for a scene. Yeah. Over and over, it proves it. Right. Because when you look at like what the logline is and what happens, which isn't a great summary of the scenes that are inside this, but it's just like a troubled man fall, falls into a cult in post-World War II America. You know, yeah. like that's- he becomes a Scientologist. Yeah. And then he, does, and then he quits late by the end. And that's basically that's it. it. It's just, yeah. so it is a tone poem. It's like a Terrence Malick we've talked about. You know, it's it's pretty great, though, because when you have Philip Seymour Hoffman and you have Joaquin Phoenix and you have Amy Adams and Rami Malek and Jillian Bell and J.C. Plemons and W. Earl Brown, uh, Laura Dern, you know, like. Yeah, it's star-studded It's a, to the rafters. You just use I them. forgot Jesse Plemons was his son. Yeah. And I love how two times someone's like, I can see the resemblance. And it's true. He does, he kind, does of kind of look like Philip like Seymour Hoffman. He's like, yeah, so. we know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I also love that I never noticed before that the guy from Silicon Valley who plays Peter Gregory is the guy who like takes him down a peg. Yes. Yeah. Which is just so funny because Mr. John Moore. He kind of has the same energy. <laughs> yeah, John Moore. Uh, and also Benny from the Mummy is in this. If you remember. Oh, that. who's he? He's the guy that gets like his ass beat. By uh, Joaquin Phoenix when he asked him, like, did you like the book? And he's like, actually, it's shit. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's Benny. That's Benny from the mummy. Bunny. Looks Bunny. like someone's on the wrong side of the book. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Joaquin Phoenix is going to slap you the shit out of you right now. In, in a really thirsty, desperate, scrabbling, ugly way. He's yeah. just going to like squeeze your head while he grunts. Oh, Ugh, he's just yeah. an ant. He's just a monkey, man. It's awesome. The thinnest we've seen Joaquin. He's so just tiny. and wiry. But yeah. he's got, he, you can see like, yeah, the frame is fucking dense. He's got that old man strength already developing. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's save some of this for pedagogy. Hell yeah. And dive right into diegesis where we break down that log line and zoom in and enhance and tell you a little more about what happens in this film in case you haven't seen it for a while or just love the dulcet tones of our voice. Mm. Uh, and more comes out as you go through the movie. More comes out. Um, it starts with, I think, very importantly, you know, we're big on first shots here. First shot is the wake of a boat. You don't even see the boat, but it's the shot out the back of a boat of the water being disturbed by a boat. That'll come up again later. Yep. And this time... I think it's three different boats that we get this from. This time, it's the boat that's taking Joaquin Phoenix to war. So we see his sort of face obscured by the landing craft. And uh, we understand he's going to fight World War II. But interestingly, instead of trying to step to Saving Private Ryan or anything like that, there's no action. We know we know because of later events in the film that he has killed people. He says, I killed Japs in the war. But uh, they show us everything in between. They show us like what... This, what the sailors do when there's downtime and they're just hanging on the beach and what mm-hmm. that's like. And that's more illuminating to his character than being in the shit. So he does a bunch of weird stuff. 
He tells a joke about how to get rid of crabs by burning them, burning your testicles and stabbing them all with an ice pick. Um, so he, he mixed, well, this is going to become huge. He mixes beer and coconut water. He's a bit of a chemist. He's, <laughs> uh, he's a wizard with, uh, alcohol apparently, uh, at yeah. least for alcoholics. Uh, he's, he'll find two items in your cabinets and make you a delicious elixir that's apparently what gets his you superpower up. is yeah um so and- we're seeing a rudimentary version of that where he does coconut and beer yeah and uh, i thought an interesting thing is he briefly considers cutting off his own hand with the machete i assume to get out of service but like he places his hand on the coconut and tests the machete <clears throat> against his wrist it could just be a thing it could just be a random affectation but I like to think that he was thinking he could get out of service. I think, yeah, it's hard to say. That's an interesting notion. I didn't have that. I was, because I see him as much more impulsive than that, but he's just a weird guy. Sometimes the the impulsiveness can have logic. Like he could be like, yeah, what if I, the result of this is the thing, a thing I want to be even freer. Um, But I think he, he actually doesn't even have problems being free. Like he loves what he's doing right now. Um, I think he's in a situation where he's just like, what would that be like? You know, like I, yeah. he's that base, um, because of other stuff he does in the movie. And where- then I've got to be the most illuminating thing about him of all the postcard is some dudes make, uh, the shape of a lady out of sand <laughs> and he goes over and fucks it as a, like a joke, but then it becomes kind of serious and he finger fucks it. Like he really means it. And he's like, and then we, yeah. He's into it. Yeah. And then we cut to him jerking off into the ocean. It's super funny that I also love that like the portrayal of sailors in this are like like they're they're kind There's of base as well. They're like as soon as he does beer. it, he humps and the for like a while, like a lot longer mm-hmm. than you'd expect. They're like, haha, that's hilarious. That's fucking hilarious. But yeah. it goes so long that it's even a family then guy they bit. go. Even then they go, All right, dude. You're yeah. being weird now. Yeah, now you've gone <laughs> too long, you know? <laughs> uh, and the weirdest of all, of course, is then he gently cradles the uh, sand woman and sleeps next yeah, to her. Yeah, he's got issues. Which is <laughs> the saddest thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, we, we know exactly what this character type is. He doesn't know how to interact with women that well. Uh, he's definitely a horny guy. He's also pro- has mother issues, you know, as you can tell with, he needs some nurture. He needs someone to take care of him as we all do, but like he is yeah. very out facing with it and can't hide it or, uh, you know, chase after it. He's just kind of, most of the time he's just a dog. He's just a jog chasing his own tail. Yeah. When he feels something, he really feels it. Uh, and he expresses it. Um, which as we'll go on to is another one of his superpowers, at least for, uh, the cult he's about to enter for the master's purposes. Right. Yeah. He's like an attack dog for him. Um, so then we get a scene that really tripped me out the first time in theaters. I think a lot of people went to their phones and Googled like, is that real? Can you do that? What does he, won't that kill you? Um, but it's apparently a story that Jason Robards told Paul Thomas Anderson about something they did when they were a sailor, which is you unscrew the bombs and you drink the fuel from the bombs that will get you drunk. So the bombs in the ship, they break open and they mix it with canned fruit. So it's just a can of fruit with bomb juice in it. And they drink that. So we're building on, yeah. we're building on his ability to make drinks out of I anything. Yeah. Yeah. It, like, and somehow he knows the combinations that won't kill you, at least for most people. For most people. Right. Frank has some trouble later, but <laughs> right. we'll get to we'll it. We'll get to it. 
Um, and we also get the impression he's been broken by the war or somehow affected and twisted, like a lot of guys, because we see him go through uh, lectures about PTSD, psychologists trying to coach them about how to go back to the real world. He takes a Rorschach test. He thinks every single thing that he sees is a cock or a pussy. Uh, so it's like he's got three things, fighting, fucking, and drinking. Yep. He's a good old boy. He's 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 the picture of the Navy, I guess. Yeah, I love that. That's one of my favorite scenes, actually, just for like sleeper scene of just the shot of faces of the men returning home and that they yeah. have they had to. I'm sure this is true to some extent. Uh, rehabilitate the Navy forces and the armed forces back to mainstream society and tell them this is what you can't do anymore. Uh, and the idea mainly being that there's a real fear, fear that these men had lost their way because they had been too close to war. That is haunting, you know, because that's a whole generation of men. Um, and, you know, we see yeah. him in therapy. And I think it also speaks to the inefficacy of what they're trying to do versus the way the master, like, you know, the Rorschach test is essentially a processing scene, but it's a banal processing scene that doesn't really get anything out of him. All it gets out of him is his surface, which is that he likes sex. Uh, whereas, of course, compare that to the processing he does for the master mm -hmm. and it like penetrates his soul. So I think there's some comparison there. Right. And we can get it. I want I really do want to get in with you why that why that works and why that would work mm -hmm. on someone versus why it wouldn't work on someone, you know, a different right. person. But I think it's key in this. He like did not, he has this interesting way of answering or bringing the truth to light. Uh, he denies having a crying spell. Like I, the, like the therapist basically is doing a psychological check and is like, we have it written down that you had a crying spell. And he's like, I didn't have a crying spell. And then he immediately packs it. It was just, a, it was a reaction to a letter I received. So it's like, he will tell you the truth. He's a liar, but he's not a very consistent one. Like he's one that will kind of like a child buckle the second that you put him under the microscope. Yeah. And almost grimly at the end, he tells the guy about a dream he had of being back home with his mother and father sitting around having drinks and being happy. And then there's a long pause and then he goes, thanks for the help. <laughs> right. So then we get another sequence where it's like he's back in America. He finds employment as a photographer at like a Sears or some kind of that, you know, the 50s Department corporate store. chain yeah. general store. Uh, there's a lady there who basically is a walking mannequin, which existed in the 50s. Uh, and he goes on a date with the lady, but he falls asleep, presumably because he's just an alcoholic. Um, and he, well, we see him drink some of the photo fluid as well. Right. So we get the <laughs> yeah. impression now he's taking jobs because those jobs give him access to chemicals. Exactly. And then so we get this small little like one, two, three kind of story, which is kind of awesome about how he doesn't work with the current society, which is that after he fails with this lady, he tried, but he's just incompa uh, incompatible. He can't do it. He just is not ready for a relationship. So out of anger, he starts a fight with W. Earl Brown, who, if you watch Deadwood, is Dan Doherty from Deadwood, mm -hmm. which leads him to obviously get fired and has this lovely little moment at the end of it after the little scuffle where he grabs the hand of the lady that he was dating, which, of course, is not going to go well. She's already like, no, man. Uh, yeah. But he's just like, I got to take what's mine. He drags mine. her with him. Yeah. Um, because that's how he perceives the world. Later, he at one point, he actually says, like, I don't like it when, like... 
other men other are guys with hands women. on my girls yeah. it makes me sick it yeah. makes me sick uh and so he's just complete id um yeah speaking of making sick next he works as a cabbage harvester mm-hmm. makes moonshine for everyone and he gives some moonshine to this old guy who he takes a shine to because he reminds him of his dad his name's frank and we immediately cut to the guy having vomit all over his beard and passing out and being like delirious because like we said his drinks are strong, man. You got to be able to take that shit. Yeah. And he's accused of poisoning the old man intentionally, which I, you get the impression, no, he was actually liked the old man. So he wanted to share his booze with him, which he's usually tight with the booze, but, uh, he liked this guy, Well, you, that's, but the guy couldn't take it. It's too much. That's the thing with Paul Thomas Anderson. And I love, he does it in there will be blood too. Um, like, there's this feeling where it's like that is kind of like if you believe your protagonist, which we almost always do, um, he's not a guy who wished harm on Frank at all. He just it got out of hand and he's irresponsible. That's totally like clearly what could have happened. But also mm-hmm. there's this whole angle, which is like, you look like my father is how this opened. Right. And he has this look of mischief on his face. So it's like. You could totally also believe that Joaquin Phoenix poisoned him if you wanted to interpret it that way. But it's not necessarily clear. Either way, it's kind of like a Schrodinger's cat kind of situation. It doesn't really, it's not a load-bearing beat for the story. He could have issues, he could have daddy issues, or he's just irresponsible. Both are true. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of there will be blood in this. Yeah. I, you know, I think they compare well johnny greenwood did both scores for example mm-hmm. uh and so it has kind of a lot of the same feels powerful commanding guy who's everyone swirls around at the center of the thing which i understand anderson likes right phantom thread is also a powerful commanding guy mm-hmm. that everyone swirls around but uh i kept thinking of there will be blood while i watched this and not just because i think of there will be blood all the time anyway <laughs> yeah for sure for sure but it's just those little maneuvers that really make you go like, man, I don't, what's going to happen next, man? Where is this movie going to go? Right. It's fantastic. Um, and where it goes is he sneaks onto a boat, mm. kind of just on instinct, looking for some, there's actually deleted scenes where he gets a bunch of food and drink. Uh, but they just assume at this point that you know what his MO is. So he just sneaks onto the boat and then we cut to him passed out. You figure out what he did. There's a and, beautiful mm-hmm. shot I wanted to point out before we go on to him meeting uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is um, there's this shot under the Golden Gate, Golden Gate Bridge where you see the two floors of the, uh, the boat, right? Mm-hmm. Or the barge or whatever you call it. <clears throat> and the top floor is a part like the party. Like where the all the cult members are just having a good time dancing, and the bottom is like the identical kind of floor plan, but it's just got Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, Lancaster Dodd is the character name, and a single young woman, and it just says everything about his grift. Right, he's just here to kind of he's here to convince and be admired, but specifically about by women if you can, you know, like that's the kind yeah. of dude this guy is it reveals his grift and it's just one of those postcard shots that you just go oh this is the first time we actually see philip seymour hoffman bam that's a picture of who he is that you need the whole movie to kind of unpack but when you see it and if you watch this again uh man oh man it really is like oh this guy sucks (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah he largely sucks 
Um, but he's charismatic and impressive, right. as Joaquin soon finds out, because he is escorted in to meet the master, who accuses him of being aberrated. He says, no, I'm not. Do you know what that means? <laughs> no. no. Yeah. <laughs> um, he also says, I do many things. I'm a doctor, a writer, a physicist, a theoretical philosopher. It's like, come on, dude, jerk off motion. Well, then he goes, uh, but of all things, I am a man. I am a man. And it's just like, I'm a oh man. my God, Iral. I love it. But the reason he's even interested in Joaquin Phoenix is that he took a nip from his flask and he wants to know, what is this wonderful potion, dear boy? They hung like, out. They had a co- yeah. conversations. Like, that's how he drunk got, Joaquin He got Phoenix so got. fucked up. He got, yeah, he doesn't remember it because he said he asked for work. But he says, uh, I don't really care about you doing work, but if you can make me more of this, this poison, this elixir, then, I'll, then you can stow away. Yeah, he uh, turns out has a taste for horrible booze, like jet engine fuel right. booze. Um, and because of that, he gets invited to his daughter's wedding. Yeah. <laughs> what a weird way to get. I'll yeah. tolerate your tomfoolery. He also says your memories are not invited, <laughs> which is yeah. such a huge offer. You know, it's cult like stuff. that nothing says cult. Like, it's comfortable here. All your pain Start and suffering. Start a new life. Forget everything else. Forget yeah. about it. Uh, yeah. And then we see kind of into their world. We see Lancaster Dodd's speeches. Uh, and Freddy's kind of into it. In fact, once he, like, one of the cooler things that I noticed this time around is that the first speech that he gives is... About wrestling the dragon? Yeah. That's the that's actually the first time in the movie we get Freddy's name. So Joaquin Phoenix's character is not named until Lancaster Dodd enters the... Uh, his life. His life, which and kind of says Lancaster master Dodd slave is- dichotomy, you know? Lancaster Dodd is not named until the police come to arrest him. Right. Yeah. Which is another. God, I love it. In all my notes, I just called him the Hoff because I forget. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he sort of in, picks up the routine of everyone on the ship and it soon becomes clear that the ship. Let's just call it a cult that the ship does cult stuff like there's people um, doing processing, listening to their past lives. Uh, someone asks him if he's done any time hole work <laughs> and the time hole, the time hole is the way you retrieve memories of your past lives. And of course, everyone calls Philip Seymour Hoffman master. Uh, and that's a loud offer, uh, through Hoffman, you get the impression that the rest of the family finds Freddie off-putting because he is an off-putting man. Um, but Philip Seymour Hoffman has taken a shine to him. So he invites him to sit at the table with his family, uh, his wife is briefly into it because she says that Freddie inspired him to write all night. And that's the most important thing right. is that he keeps writing his book. I also like and in that conversation, mm-hmm. Amy, Amy Adams, who's excellent in this Peggy, um, she drops that, uh, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman is a man under attack. The, many people want to see him taken down. And that's why they take these kind of uh, cruises, because when they're on land, it's the barbarians at the gate. Um, and yeah. we like you were mentioning the cult teachings that they're talking about. I love that they record everything because that makes it seem like it's something of like, oh, you're going to get objective truth out of this. But then mm-hmm. it's like the conclusions of which are like, we are spirits. Uh, and um, I love that um, Joaquin Phoenix at one point puts on the headphones to uh, kind of listen in onto his teachings. And we get this one, two beat that's kind of excellent, which is as the recording 
of Lancaster Dodd is saying, we are not beasts. Joaquin Phoenix writes on a piece of paper, do you want to fuck? And shows it to a random woman. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like, well, none of this is true, man. (laughs) By the way, this is true of L. Ron Hubbard. He had a boat and he tried to stay in international waters to get away with a lot of his crimes because he did commit crimes. Uh, So there's inspiration here, which he didn't shy away from. In fact, it caused a rift between him and Tom Cruise, who, of course, from Magnolia. Uh, Anderson said he screened it for him and he really didn't like the scene where Jesse Plemons admits that he's making it all up. Mm, As you might expect. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, And, but even that dragon speech, right? It's, it's the fact that he performs the shit out of it and he's wildly charismatic, but basically he says marriage is like a dragon and I lasso the dragon and I, now the dragon's on a leash and I tell him to sit and he sits. I tell him to stay and he stays. And that's where we're at now. Soon we'll teach him to roll over and play dead. That doesn't mean anything. That's like that's not a marks. coherent. Yeah. yeah. He's just making up stuff that sounds important. It's all he, there's some like attempts at pseudo psychology, um, like the processing and like the kind of, um, it's interesting because we get that first scene with Joaquin Phoenix being processed by Philip Seymour, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And it's an absolute banger of a scene, right? Yeah. Half hour in, we get a long, long scene of, uh, let's see what a full session of processing. And it's, this is what, this is also what Scientologists do right, to get you in the door. It's on par with the E-meter test, if you've heard of yeah. that, where they ask you kind of questions that are designed to kind of like introspect into your insecurities and regrets, but they're soft reading kind of things where it's like, well, yeah, a lot of people would lie to that question uh, given the circumstances of just like, like just coldly asking them that because you, it's too personal, you know? So they will take that kind of misinformation say, Oh, see you're hiding. And it's like, well, yeah, humans all hide when they're asked about these kinds of questions, but they take it and they try like to when cash When a stranger in. asks you, do you regret your life so far? Yeah. You want to say no, just because that's the answer to that. Right. And the pseudo psychology doesn't go much farther than, like basically a blunt instrument like Hoffman basically is like, I'll say a question and then I'll repeat it, but slightly louder, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And they're just, it's a high, like I said, these questions have a high chance of being subjective uh, or someone might lie about it. When you're asked it four times in a row, uh, you get the feeling like your answers might want to change just out of social nicety, you know, like they, Mm -hmm. he's preying on insecurity. He's not preying on truth. Uh, and out of this kind of conversation, which is amazing because at one point Joaquin Phoenix like doesn't blink for like a minute and a half. Um, we find out that he has regret over like a 16 year old girl that he's interested in. He shared an ancestral relationship with his aunt. Um, he has a dead father and a mother that's in a, uh, an insane asylum. So he's very alone. Uh, he's very pained and been abused. And he has uh, outrageous wants that will probably never be alleviated. He's like the perfect candidate for something like this. Um, and I love that there's a few quotes that I wanted to pull out. One of them is uh, early on after he's been kind of a, you know, <laughs> after Joaquin Phoenix has kind of been uh, an asshole and is like, oh, this is fun. I'm having a fun her. And then he's like. He asks him, are you scientific in your thought? And he goes, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like very pleased. Uh, he also has this father energy Hoffman does, which is 
uh, you are the bravest boy I've ever met. So mm-hmm. there's this kind of like carrot and stick aspect to all of this conversation that happens very fast. Uh, and it's a classic yeah. abuse cycle. He's always cruel and then kind. Have cruel you seen the, kind. um, have you seen the, uh, it's available online they, on YouTube. This scene has, uh, like a, a blooper reel. Oh yeah. Where he, they can't stop laughing after the cool line <laughs> cool. is one of the bloopers. Yeah. Minty I like the minty flavor. Yeah. It's such a, it looks like a delight to be working on. Cause these two, these two, like fantastic actors who are mostly killing it just cannot get one line right because it's a mm-hmm. ridiculous line in fact you can tell in the edit of the movie like paul thomas anderson wanted it so bad that he just cuts right after he says minty flavor cut because you can tell that like joaquin phoenix is about to burst with laughter yeah it's just one of those things about love movies I would have loved to seen uh, off-screen conversations between these two in particular. Like, what was Joaquin and Philip working together like? I'm fascinated. I bet it was riveting. Every minute on that set was riveting. The boat trip kind of concludes in New York. I mean, that's what they did. They went basically California through Panama Mm -hmm. to New York, but we're only on the boat for all of it. Uh, And they arrive at a benefactor's party. And I love that immediately uh, Freddie just starts stealing trinkets from what I assume is the richest people he's ever seen. Right. Right. You know, he's 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 born poor. He was in he the just Navy. stuff stuff in his coat pocket. Yeah. He's just anything he can get his hands on at one at one point. He grabs something that's clearly too large and he tries to fit it in his jacket. But he's like, this is. I probably shouldn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is where Peter Gregory uh, of Silicon Valley. I'm sorry. I can't remember the, uh, the actor's name. Dr. John Moore. Oh, I don't know the actor's <clears throat> name, but he's the skeptic. He represents the skeptic. And while uh, the master is processing an old lady who thinks she used to be a man in armor in a past life, a skeptic interrupts and asks all the questions we would ask. Isn't this just basic hypnosis? Uh, in your book, The Cause, you said that processing can cure leukemia. That seems like quite a claim. It wears the scientific backing. Can you defend your beliefs, sir? And accuses it of being a cult, finally. And Hoffman doesn't really have answers to this other than grandiose promises to eliminate war and poverty and the atomic threat. And uh, Which is says wild. that the, uses analogies that make it work, right? The past is like a river behind us is around the bend. We can't see it, but we know it's there. I've never been to the pyramids, but I know they're there. And it all finally breaks down when he Which just strong, goes, strong, pig fuck. Yeah. Pig <laughs> fuck. Just calls the guy a pig fuck because ultimately he has no answer. Or he has reached the end of his patience with this, right? Um, and he really does flip out if you get to the core of it, which is calling him a charlatan, calling him a fraud right. that he cannot abide. And this is the first time we see Freddy step up in a way that you have to wonder if the master likes it or doesn't like it because it's like Mm. having a, having your henchman do something and then going, Oh no, bad henchman, bad henchman. Freddy throws a rotten tomato at the guy and, uh, the master's like, Freddy, no, don't do that. But you know, I would argue the way he's maneuvered Freddy, that's exactly the kind of thing Freddy's there to do. That's one of the reasons he likes Freddy. He, he's, yeah. he, he's free Loyalty. to do what he wants, you know, and that when that works for the master, then, uh, you know, the master's happy. But when it doesn't, the master's very angry. That's how the shit works. And Peggy agrees. She said, talks about how they have to attack his detractors. 
uh, as furiously with great passion. And Freddie takes that literally and takes Rami Malek on a little side trip to go to the skeptic's apartment at three in the morning and beat the shit out of him. Yep. We don't know exactly what happens, but we assume that he's pretty fucked up because we know that this is a violent man. Uh, and so he probably beat the shit out of his face. Um, Hoffman and calls him a naughty boy. When he a returns, mischief. Yeah. You're f- what a horrible young man you naughty are. Naughty boy. <laughs> a dirty animal that eats its own feces when hungry. But you still get the sense that he's like, yeah, he's chastising him, but like, and he's telling him, don't go too far. He's telling him there is a line, but he never really says that he broke it. He just calls him naughty. And like, mm-hmm. this is not what we represent. But in a paternal way. But in a paternal way that it's like, it's not what you don't represent. Like, he's kind of, he's kind of giving permission in a strange, like, way, in my opinion. Yeah. Because he's not, like, just saying straight up, no, you can't do that. You cannot do that. Um, Because that's how you should react to that. Uh, And this is sort of their scam, is they go from house to house and have these big house parties where they process and stuff at various rich people's houses. So they're on to another one in Philadelphia, and he gives a lecture about what it's like to be in love that also meanders and is compelling, but ultimately doesn't amount to much. And they all sing and dance. And I imagine it's Freddie's imagination and not literally happening. It definitely is, yeah. Yeah, at one point, the camera sweeps across and all the women are now completely naked. Uh, That's basically all Freddie is getting out of the experience. I think we're supposed to believe that Joaquin Phoenix is obviously hammered and just kind of punch drunk looking at this this dance that's happening but i think it's objectively because amy adams in the next scene kind of chastises dodd for being a horny little drunk boy um Mm. so we get the feeling that he was dancing but he was a little bit he was grabbing on women and you know like moving around the room um enjoying and feeling himself you know so yeah like we definitely see how Amy Adams in the following scene notices Speaking how of feeling himself drunk and horny Hoffman has been since Freddie entered the picture right. and she, so she jerks him off yep. to exert control. She controls it's when he comes. Fantastic. He's a retainer. <laughs> fantastic. Yes. She tells him he can do whatever he wants as long as she doesn't find out. But also I control when you come basically. Yep. And she also tells him she's sick of him drinking that boy's hooch. Yeah. The drinking has gone too far. So no and more. And he makes him promise to stop with the booze. Yeah. Right. Uh, and she also goes to uh, like a scene immediately after she goes to Freddie and gives him an ultimatum. Doesn't jerk him off, but it's like, you can't do, we can't handle no more booze. And he goes, okay, yeah. uh, no more booze. She's like, if you do the booze, you're gone. Uh, so he says he doesn't. And then we cut to the following morning. And of course, he's, he's got a flask in his hand. He's not listening to shit. Yeah. Uh, he's a free bird. Yep. And uh, uh, and this is the scene where Jesse yes. Plemons is sort of dozing on the porch. And he asks, you know, how are you like in the lecture or whatever? And Jesse Plemons is like, are you kidding me? It's all bullshit. You don't see that? He makes it up as he goes along. And then Freddie sort of mad dogs him. And shakes his chair and tells him, You're if you a, believe that, yeah. then you should fight. You should be a man. You should do something about it. Uh, and we get the impression that Freddie would have beat the shit out of him, except the cops come yeah, to arrest Lancaster Maybe. Dodd. I think he's got, at this point, too much respect for Dodd that he's probably not yeah. going to beat up his son. But he's definitely going to try to threaten. He wants to. And he was going to yeah. threaten him as much as he can to just, like, don't say bad shit about your father. 
you know, is basically the result he wants because he's a little boy. He just wants his he wants all yeah. the things to be copacetic with the way he internalizes the world. So daddy gets arrested for running a medical school without a license. And my favorite line from that scene is, what honor do you have? What part of the galaxy? And then it just stops <laughs> yeah. because there's I mean, you know, people who have seen the South Park episode about Scientology know that the reality is that there's a lot of sci-fi involved. L. Ron Hubbard was a sci-fi author, and a lot of the deep truths that he claims to unveil are about science fiction concepts mm -hmm. and like theta waves from people being an ancient race that got thrown in a volcano and shit like that. And I think PTA wanted to keep that very light in this movie, but there are a couple of references. There's just one or two references where Lancaster will say something like galaxy or planet or... Like, clearly there is a sci-fi bent to yeah, this call. absolutely. And Freddy is also arrested because he had just attacks the police officers. He, uh, fights the cops, yeah, yeah. He's just a dog. He's just a, a, a little dog or a small boy uh, who just doesn't, he just roughhouses with everything. Um, and then but we what's get, interesting yeah. is he seems to absorb any wisdom that anyone gives him. Because now that the son has said he's full of shit, in the next scene, he's That's his he in Lancaster- he and Lancaster are in separate, are adjoining cells, and he tells Lancaster, you're full of shit, you run a cult. And it's the only time in the whole movie that he ever questions the facts of Lancaster. In fact, he, for, he forgives it. He, like, that worry gets alleviated, basically, yeah. just by having it talked away, because they're, you know, when he returns, they're all, you know, thick as thieves. So it's just like, he's moving from one thing to another, he's not that smart. But he's just like, oh, is that a new thing to internalize? And it's why it mm -hmm. works on, like, the cult aspect works on him. What's the next thing? Oh, I'm being told that this is the way the world works because I don't want to think about the world. I don't want to be fine. a schmuck. That's fine. Yeah. I'll, I'll just roll with this then. Um, yeah. And he doesn't develop as a person. He just develops into whatever, you know, part is needed uh, at the time. But at the same thing, at the same time, he can't actually function in society because uh, he's traumatized and abusive. Yeah. Um, but when he gets out of jail, he and Lancaster wrestle around and laugh and roll around on the grass and it's all is forgiven. Yeah. Even though the family is increasingly telling him, you got to get rid of this guy. Uh, Rami Malek thinks he's there to steal the second book and sell it to a publisher. Right. He probably is not that much of a criminal mastermind. Right. But, but he could be faking it, you know. Yeah, but he, but the point is they all don't like him, yeah. but Hoffman is the king and the king likes him. I so like he the stays. inclusion of, and this is one, another thing that doesn't, it's again, not load bearing, doesn't include the theme is just a detail. Um, but it's a fantastic detail, which is that in the kind of honeymoon phase earlier in the movie around the 30 minute mark, when he's kind of getting processed for the first time or getting to know the cult, uh, the daughter of, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, basically tries to jerk him off, Freddie. Uh, and he's just, yeah, feels him up during a lecture. And I wondered what that meant. She's just like, I think we're supposed to believe that, like, it's just all Freddie loves this world now because he's being accepted and there's women here and his family's really warm to him to the point of like, maybe you can get sex out of it, which is wild because she's literally married to Rami Mel. Just got married. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, the idea is that she is now throwing him under the bus. It reveals, I guess, if anything, a hypocrisy uh, that's so deeply entrenched in the family 
that they've learned this from Lancaster Dot that you just can yeah. lie. You can just lie to people, turn on people, whatever you need in order to get what you want. Um, yeah. And then we get a sequence that is many sequences nested together and it's sort of intercut. I'm sure it was quite an editing challenge of multiple things that are happening that are processing sessions. So one of them is that Freddie is put in the middle of a room and he's told to walk back and forth and touch spots on the wall and then say what he feels like when he touches the window, when he touches the wall from the window to the wall. <laughs> uh, and they just ask him what he feels. And this will ultimately go on and on and on so long that it's designed to break him emotionally. And it does. And like Lancaster and the whole group leave and have lunch and Lancaster just yells through the window again, back again, back again. Um, so there's this kind of torture wearing him down in the way that a cult does. This is brainwashing techniques. Yeah. Uh, there's also one where he and Rami Malek sit across from each other and you're supposed to not blink and look at each other dead in the eye and you have 60 seconds to say anything you want. And Rami Malek's obviously been fed this information because he immediately just says Doris, 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 which he knows is the name of his love that he lost, his greatest regret. Uh, so it's like not fair. Then there's one where um, I love just a bit about that where he goes yeah. Doris. He says Doris a few times, and he goes, he goes. That, see, that doesn't work on me. It's I'm totally fine. You can say it as many times as you want, and he says it like two more times. Doris, Doris. He says, say your fucking name one more time. Yeah. It's yeah, just yeah. like immediate to a hundred. It's moments like that where it's hard to watch this and go like, oh, why did I ever think that this wasn't like a straight up like comedy basically? Mm. Uh, because there's the joke. Some of the jokes are just like almost Simpsons jokes. It's so on the nose. Uh, well, and then when it's his turn to think of something and he tries to think of the meanest thing he can say right. to demolish this guy, <laughs> he says, I want to fart in your face. If I had a fart right now, I'd fart in your face. Yeah. <laughs> he just so, can't, can't muster the same level so of good. incision. Um, and then there's another one where Peggy, uh, Lancaster's wife, does various things, uh, makes him tell her what the color of her eyes are, reads him sexy stories and he's not allowed to react, stuff like that. So he's getting processed to shit. It's like this is his breaking. It's his Rocky training montage, but his brainwashing montage. And it kind of is working. I mean, the implication is that especially with the Amy Adams stuff, like her eyes change color, you know, like magically yeah. on film, but like you're supposed to be in the mind. Like, I think we're supposed to believe that he does kind of see the thing they're doing, the tactics, mm. the, the, you know, kind of oppressive uh, tactics of the cult are working on him. Even though we do see very soon, you can't really change, uh, you know, the tiger stripes. He's going to just yeah. be Freddy forever. By the end of the touching exercise, he says, I can touch the neighbor's house. I can touch the stars. I can touch anything I want. Uh, and then he finally says the exercise is over and he gives him like a fatherly hug. Right. So it's this breaking you and making it seem like only I am the solution. Only I am the right. salve that will, I, you know. I give you, I allow you to be yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and then we get a sequence where he's like fully, so now he's like fully a member of the church, so to speak. The family even welcomes him. They and uh, Hoffman gives this announcement where he's like, we're going to, we're, we're coming out with book two, 
book two's coming out, baby. Like that's the next the phase. Split in... saber. Yeah, which I just love book two because it's just like, what was the first book? Book one, <laughs> you know, it's just like Bible two. The cause. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, so they go out to the desert uh, and they dig up a small box. And this is just so wonderfully like, just like the edgelord shit. So arrogant. You know, and so I love how... Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is dressed in the scene kind of like a like a like shitty he's on cowboy you yeah. know like he might as well have like a cape you know and it's his unpublished work he wears uh, it's hilarious and as we see it being kind of mass produced uh, for later development by the masses uh, we see on the uh, title page uh, as a gift to homo sapiens from mm -hmm. Lancaster Dodd. So it just shows how much, how high he considers himself. The absolute and ego how we're dealing with. The ego, the ego, because it's how important his image is to him. Because then we right. get him, we get people recording testimonials. We get Joaquin and the son-in-law handing out flyers in front of the center, trying to get new people to come in and get mm -hmm. processed. We get uh, Joaquin using his photo making skills, right? right. From the department He's helpful. store. He's useful. He's taking pictures of Master and making him look good. For and the it's book a large sequence like with no drinking happening. So he's right. kind of obeying the laws. Also, there's I love the flyer scene because it's a kind of sneaky uh, development there because a few people are like, fuck you, or like they just uh, ignore him on the street. All of this stuff is stuff that would in the past totally set Freddie off. But he's kind of learned like... It's interesting He's that Paul Thomas Anderson is kind of portraying like as a Band-Aid, some of this stuff works, but I think right. that's- Right, and that's yeah. something people say about Scientology is it's just basic talk therapy. And so if you're in a really bad way, just talking to someone can feel good. Like just basic talk therapy can definitely help you somewhat. That doesn't mean you should sign a thousand year contract to the Scientology. Yeah, or give you them know. your money and consider yourself right. saved. You know, you're- you haven't been saved, you slightly altered your behavior and it's slightly better. You know, there's ways yeah. to do it. Even. And this is also when Benny from The Mummy says he liked the first book, but he thinks the second book is garbled and twisted. And he goes, can I talk to you for a minute outside? <laughs> Which he should have known, man. How yeah. do you not know what's coming? Okay, can I just talk to you a minute outside? Beats the shit dumb out of as him. fuck, dude. Yeah, a lot yeah. of these, a lot of these cult followers are not the most critical of thinkers. Um, and the same with Lancaster. We get Laura Dern because yeah, the uh, the skepticism. He can't take skepticism. Yeah, Laura Dern asks why he changed one of the processing questions from book one to book two, and he clearly makes up the answer. Like it's just it's just sort of something he did by mistake, and he won't right. admit that. He won't, and admit. he ends up snapping at her. Yeah, it's it's pig fuck at Phil at uh, Peter Gregory. Yeah. It's shouting at her, but you, so you kind of get the feeling that the end is getting closer. Like this is not going to work out for him, right? Like something mm -hmm. that even his most loyal followers, there's a line in the sand, and book two represents this kind of like it's the sophomore album of a band. You go like, oh, that first album was amazing. What happens when your second album comes out and people are like, this isn't as good. Uh, yeah. Are you going to are you going to say, fuck you all? You're not loyal. Or are you going to be like, OK, we can, you know, this ride is now altering. It's changing. But you if you're claiming to be a god, you can't you can't you're, back down. Yeah, you're infallible. You have to say everyone's wrong. The book and is great. So 
all of the loyalists are getting, you know, there's benefits for them. Meanwhile, the culling of the herd is kind of happening. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix are doing more boyish, cool things like driving motorcycles. And uh, there's this game where it's pick a point in the middle of this like big salt flat is looks like or desert where it's just like pick a point, drive there, drive back. And I think the key is that it's kind of like it's behavior of a dog. It's go chase a thing and then come back to me. Right. And so he's testing mm-hmm. their loyalty with a single thing that is like, oh, this is supposed to be fun. Go enjoy a motorcycle ride. So Philip Seymour Hoffman does it to kind of present this is how you do it. And then he's like, okay, Freddie, you do it now. Uh, and Freddie, first off, uh, drives way too fast. Philip Seymour Hoffman no- notices this and he's kind of pleased by Joaquin Phoenix's mm-hmm. freedom. He's like, oh, he's going very fast. Good boy. Until he goes past where he, he was said he was going to go. He was going to turn back. Right. When yeah. he's supposed to turn back and return to his master. Then he starts screaming, Freddie, because he loves the lack of control that Joaquin Phoenix offers. It's the freedom that his cult seeks, but he hates the fact that he can't control it. He, fa- he hates the fact that he's not the god of it, which you can't be god of freedom. So like what? That's right. why this is all silly. Um, Although later he'll say, but no one can live without serving a master. So exactly. He, he believes that control is intrinsic to the nature of any relationship. So, uh, yeah. And they have to walk, they have to walk and I mean, they have a car, walking. but yeah, they're like yeah. shown as like, oh, I guess he took the motorcycle, <laughs> took the motorcycle and he just fucked up. And, uh, that's true. And what's interesting is we don't really get a lead up to this. And that's one of the cool things I like about Freddie's character is that sometimes it's impulsive at any time he might just do something crazy. And right. so he just breaks his loyalty after doing all this good work because he was tired of, you know, doing the thing. So now he's doing this. And I think it's because as we get in the next scene, Freddie visits Doris's home. He goes back to Massachusetts where it was just where he was raised and where he, you know, had this relationship with this underage girl. Uh, and he finds out by talking to her mother that she's Doris has been married for three years and she lives in Alabama and has kids and uh, her mother's and her name is Doris Day now. <laughs> yeah, which is just a funny little detail, like like the movie star. Uh, and her yeah. mother asks, like, why didn't you ever come back? And he just can't even answer that question. So he just missed the boat there. And yeah, I like the Doris Day thing because it's almost like, like, huh, like the the like the movie star. And then we cut yeah. to him going to a movie theater. So it's almost like you just put something in his brain and then he goes and does that thing. He just chases it. Uh, I liked the subtext of how he always has to mad dog everyone, uh, <laughs> even to Doris's mom. It was nice to see you. Oh, am I leaving? No, whatever you want. You want to come in? No, I got to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in control. Yeah. He can't be seen as weak. He's asleep at the movie theater. Uh, and Usher comes in with a phone and he has a call from the master who it, we now get the impression he hasn't seen in a while. Well, yeah, uh, he seems to have broken from the cult. Yeah, because uh, he also says, come to England, which is like a big yeah. move. They hadn't even discussed England. Come to England, you'll love it So here. a few months have passed. And he tantalizes him, which is such a good cult leader technique. Right. I can cure you. Also, I remember where we've met. I'll tell you. Come to England. Right. This is a kind so of like I have a mystery box that we kind of skipped over is that one of the tactics, I guess. I mean, maybe you could believe it's true with from Lancaster Todd towards Freddie is that he goes like, I've seen you before. You're very familiar to me. 
And so it adds this mystery of like, we are kindred spirits. And on top of everything, there is a spiritualism obviously being discussed throughout the movie. So you get the feeling that he's trying to say like, we are brothers of some kind. Um, and now he finally says, yeah, I know where I met you. Uh, Freddie and when goes he comes to England, England, he'll ultimately tell him that we met in a past life. Yeah. Which is, I love the answer is always cult bullshit. It's always right? something that he makes up, obviously. Right. Um, and he tells him, I miss you, you know? And so there's, it's mixed with this genuine kind of camaraderie, uh, which makes it all the worse, you know? Like it's like your lies to create loyalty. But there is a sense of brotherhood between them. Like you, when you when they're roughhousing on the ground, you do get the sense that they're both getting what they need out of that relationship. Like they're having fun. Uh, they're being free with each other. And it's it's great for both of them in a way. Like Lancaster needs a little brother. Yeah. He to fuck around with. Yeah. Because he's tired of acting like a god because he knows it's false. But anyway, Freddie goes to England. Uh, and basically Amy Adams and, uh, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman are sitting in a room that's very like, very much like the throne, uh, the you know. biggest room you've ever fucking seen. Right. Yeah. And the throne room, uh, and basically he's given a kind of statement of, you need to join the cause and clean up your act, all the stuff that we said in the past, but you need to like be the super loyal, which is something that Peggy literally mentions, which is something that Scientology does. That he needs to sign a billion year contract. Right. But it gives this feeling of desperation where it's like you need to be the, our most loyal like soldier. That's your purpose yeah. now. Because you can tell like they're they're looking to soldier up that, you know, so it's they're They ran away to England. They are not because probably legal allowed problems. in America right. anymore. Yeah. So we get this. It's just wonderful detail um, or the the kind of. And either or situation is you leave forever and never come back. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of how it's presented to Freddie. And then she exits and it's just them too. Um, and we, he says, here's how we met. We met when we were, uh, we, we worked during a war together and you made balloons and we sent, uh, messages through these balloons and we worked together free saving lives. And like, in the like most horrible winter of the war, uh, we made every balloon through, you know, like none of the balloons pop, no one took them down. So we were Everyone heroes. got our messages. We were heroes. Yeah. yeah. And it's, so it's, of course, it's this made up silly story about balloons, but it's, it's exactly what both of them, it had to deal with war because they're both like Navy kind of types and had to deal with, and it had to, I mm -hmm. think the, I think the, um, balloon thing also kind of represents the freedom like th we were free back in the day we can yeah. be free again so he's just making up these stories to make it as appetizing to freddie as possible and then he sings him a love song <laughs> yeah so it's always that cruel and then kind the carrot and the stick um sings to him as he cries and i think we get the impression it's not explicitly said but he decides to leave forever right yeah, no, he says... Yeah, he's out. I, yeah, bye. <laughs> You're like, I'm not going to yeah. be able to do what you ask of me. But, of course, he can't even stick to that because later he goes to a pub, picks up a woman, hooks up with her, and while they're hooking up, he says, can you look at me and not blink and I'm going to ask you some questions that'll the help processing. you. So he's still regurgitating the cult Yeah, he learns the cult shit. He found it valuable, and now he's just, but he's moved on. He's, yeah. 
and he calls her the bravest girl I've ever known. Wait, so he's he's now what he's learned from this whole experience is maybe I can control some people by doing the things he did to me that worked on me. Yep. And that's kind of uh, that's the movie. That's it. I mean, we end with another shot of him. You know, he's got this kind of relationship like it's kind of working on her. And then it cuts to him on the beach. We have this re- like reincorporation of this image we've seen before of the, the woman in the sand. Um, and, it's, and he's sleeping. And he's her. sleeping. So he's kind of found a form of peace. But knowing Freddy, it's probably fickle. He has a lot to work on before he can find true happiness. Uh, so he, it's this bittersweet kind of like, oh, boy, you're a little bit more happy now, but like, how long is this going to last? Are you going to get angry? Like if you no, he needs real therapy. Yeah. For a long like time. if you marry this woman, are, is, yeah. are you going to be a danger to yourself or her? You know, like these are questions that we are left with that are unanswered, but that's not the scope of the movie. The movie is just saying these two people met and changed and were changed because of it, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. You know, that's par for the course of, Paul Thomas Anderson. Of any character, and specifically a character study. Yep. Let's go to the next thing, right? Let's do it. Yeah, so this is pedagogy, where we basically just say all the things we haven't said yet uh, about the movie. I mentioned the Johnny Greenwood score. I think it really comes through and shines. Uh, I also noticed, so I guess the first thing I'll talk about to kick it off is Joaquin Phoenix's incredible physicality in this movie. Yeah, his gait. yeah, there's so there's a way he puts his hands on his hips that is so consistent that it's obviously a character choice. And it's an old fashioned way of putting your hands on your hips. Mm-hmm. And he does it constantly. And I just love actors who get physicality right like that. Like that's a very theatrical tradition is working out the body structures and the physical ticks that your character has specifically. Another one, of course, is he talks out of the side of his mouth. Mm-hmm. And in fact... He had metal plates installed with rubber bands to hold the right side of his mouth together so that the left side of his mouth only talk with the left side of his mouth. So that's how much he cared about the physicality. He had his jaw wired up um, to make that consistent. And Joaquin is stunningly consistent. He moves like this guy. It's, and it's, un, it's unlike, you know, in Napoleon, he moves completely differently because he's high status. He moves like a beaten dog in this. Right. I just thought that was so amazing. Yeah, and it's perfect identity for the character. I think the last thing you just said is exactly right. I think um, that kind of goes to like what this all is. What is all of this about? And we have to ask ourselves the question that we started kind of the podcast with, which is that first image question of the swirling wake of boats uh, and Joaquin putting on a helmet. What do you think that means? The boats thing. So there's three times we see the wake of a boat. The first one, he's on his way to war. The second one is Philip Seymour Hoffman's boat sailing to New York City. And then the third one is the boat that takes him to England. And I think that tied into what Philip Seymour Hoffman said about the past as a river and it goes around the bend and you can't see it Mm -hmm. anymore. I think the wake is his regrets. It's the past. It's It's the the remnants. stuff behind you that's all churned up and fucked up because you passed through. Yeah, that's kind of what I took from it too. A focus on the remnants or the aftermath of, I think of the boat as Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Like leadership is 
this spire that kind of cuts through everything. I am the commander of this vessel. But yeah. it also makes this tumultuous kind of chaos behind it. And we're going to, and basically the movie is by just by cutting out, cropping out the ship essentially, and just showing the wake is saying, we're going to focus on the damage of the blast radius, so to speak. Um, and how it right. f- alters all characters and how cults fuck up things. Um, and what is left in, in their wake in literally the service of trying to be, following a leader in the service Mm -hmm. of kind of going to war um so i thought that that was pretty cool uh also more joaquin goodness i i maybe i'm just picking up on it but i thought he mumbled more when he was at war and then he tried to talk more clearly when he was back in the real world and he starts to speak more and more intelligibly as the film goes on. Yes. Like he really is cleaning himself up for the cult. He's he wants mimicking to be more Dodd is what I think is really yeah. happening. And it's also because he's kind of doing this thing where it's uh, he's a he's a base animal. It's basically why he's such a good fit for the cult. Because most of what the cult talks about is like, we are not animals, we are not the base beasts, but rather we are spirits. So you should act like a spirit, I guess, or you should have some self-respect. Dodd's he doesn't whole respect structure, anything uh, at the beginning. Yeah, Dodd's whole belief structure and the lie that he peddles to humans is that humans are inherently perfect and not animals. Humans are better than animals yeah. and they're special and they're chosen by cosmic forces to be perfect. Yeah. And that's the state you want to return to by paying him to process you. Right. I love how the acting exercises or the exercises of the cult themselves uh, are all like method acting exercises, which kind of brings up an interesting point that a lot of critics uh, identified early on about these two kind of actors and possibly what the film is a little bit about because we know Paul Thomas Anderson likes to make movies that are not secretly about but rather like you can interpret them as a treatise on filmmaking itself Uh, Mm. and in this case it would be acting where you have these two types of characters one who's method right you have Joaquin Phoenix who's acting like he's Freddy for three months and then, or a Daniel Day Lewis character, which is something right. that, you know, um, Paul Thomas Anderson said of Joaquin Phoenix is he was like, yeah, I hadn't seen the shit since Daniel Day Lewis is insane. And then you have Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's much more of like the, um, you know, very specific, but very, Technician. D- yeah, technical precision, but very, you know, uh, like I'm going to approach it academically and I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to be very um, specific with my offers and they're very thought out. Um, and it's the exact setup of the movie, right? Like that's exactly those two characters. So you couldn't ask for two different actors to be more presentational about their, you know, methods, uh, right in the characters themselves. That's maybe one of the reasons that Phillips or, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has said that this is his favorite movie he's made. Yeah. It's his favorite. And the casting is, Brilliant beyond like the casting is inherent to what the exercise is. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Which is so rare in a movie, Uh, especially when you're trying to harness like PTA is trying to harness a method actor, just like Philip Seymour Hoffman's trying to harness a guy who can't be harnessed because he's so unruly. Right. (laughs) Which brings me to the prison scene. Uh, You know, in there will be blood that scene where he rubs Paul Dano's face in the mud was improvised. Method actors do shit like this. This is a problem in my mind with method acting. But in the prison scene, Joaquin Phoenix's flip out in the jail cell completely improvised. So like he does this thing where 
he bangs his head and body up against the bed over and over and the beds on chains. So it like goes up and down, up and down, up and down. And then he kicks the toilet apart. And Joaquin Phoenix later said that he didn't think he was strong enough to kick a toilet apart. He was just going to kick the toilet. But man, he smashed the shit out of it. <laughs> he really did. <laughs> yeah. And I also want to give it to all Philip Seymour Hoffman for not like fucking up that take. Because if I saw a guy go ham on a toilet and just deconstruct go, it, are you okay? I would be yeah. like, oh fuck, you know, like you I would react that take. somehow. No, Philip Seymour Hoffman just you know totally professional, cool as a cucumber. stays in character. Yeah, yeah, stays in character and experiences it. And then that scene between them is the shouting match. It reminds me of. Uh, punch drunk love when he's the mattress man who just says shut the fuck up shut the fuck yeah, up because when we yeah. this is the moment we most see Lancaster Dodd at his bassist and most animalistic is Freddie starts telling him the thing you cannot say to this man you're full of shit it's lies you're making it up and he goes ape shit on Freddie he yeah. says you're a piece of shit you lazy ass I'm the only one who likes you I'm the only one nobody likes you you lazy ass piece of shit right uh just so unlike his manicured uh you know pretense that he puts forward because this is they're in jail they're at their bottommost point and they're scrabbling in the dirt like animals I think Joaquin mm-hmm. has gotten him down to his level and then sort of to get his status back, he just takes a piss, which is a brilliant way to end that scene. Yeah, just take a piss. As uh, if to say, my toilet still works. How about that, asshole? Right. <laughs> Most of this movie, and I'd say like, if you go online and you try to see like any interpretations of this movie, most of them are dealing with one of two things, right? One is the question of like who these characters represent, which we kind of talked about. Freddy is pure id, right? And... Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is pure ego and pure it is basically genuine freedom and Dodd it that's what he's trying to do right Dodd recognizes that he is genuine freedom and he's just firing from the hip but and his cult is primarily about faking freedom and discussing how to be free so Freddie is this kind of albatross he's this intriguing thing that also kind of represents a threat to uh Dodd because freedom is also erratic and dangerous. Right. And this is something where someone interpreted, uh, I believe it comes from, uh, shit, I'm trying to look at exactly where it came from, but it's a New Yorker article talking about interpretations of this movie. Uh, oh, sorry. It's a Vulture ar- uh, article um, written by Bill Jabri. Uh, And it talks about Hegel's master-slave dialectic, which would make a lot of sense. That basically what Hegel says is they both need, need, like both the master and the slave need acknowledgement from each other to exist. And also that's the the key is that like their setup, the reason they exist is to compete with each other. Like the slave gains more knowledge and needs the master less and less and less. And the master basically hates this as he kind of dispenses and teaches the slave or like you know you can interpret it it doesn't have to be master slave in the way of like purely slavery this could also be an interpretation that is dealing with like a mentor status low status mentor you know yeah teacher Um, student so like it's this idea that they need each other and they're in this kind of cosmic forever battle, which is kind of interesting because that's exactly what the cult is saying is that we'll see each other in a billion years and we'll be mortal enemies is kind of one of the last thing that Dodd says to Freddie. Uh, so I think that he was kind of aware of this interpretation 
because uh, it's basically trying to set this thing up as a cosmic battle between like archetypes of humans who will do this two liars two people who are basically children who are purely run on one type of energy whether it's you know the need to never be locked down or it's the need to be beloved um and they will just go they'll just go to war with each other they can't they are incompatible a, and they I love mean, each other they picked a point and all they do is drive as fast as they can at that point. Like it's a perfect metaphor for right. what they both are. And it's perfect. That dot is like jealous that Freddie yeah. can go so fast and not play his game. He hates it. I also love in that scene, he says, I'm going to, I pick that rock. That's the point I pick. And he goes, it's not a rock. It's an alligator's head. It's like, you don't have to define reality all the time for <laughs> yeah, everyone. Exactly. <laughs> it's great. It's a great point. Uh, yeah. So. And yet, both of them are kind of suits they wear, right? Like they're both presentations of themselves, uh, which I think is so interesting when you compare, again, the army processing to the processing they do in the cult. Because in the army processing, you're supposed to think he's kind of a moron because all he sees in the Rorschach tests are pussies and cocks. And then later when they're doing the processing on the boat, they talk about going back to the pre-birth era and her memory is of her pregnant mom getting fucked while she was in the womb. And then on the on the board behind them, it says coitus slash douche. So I just think there is an, inten an intentional comparison of like primal human forces are always there. Fucking is always there. It's just how you dress it up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, another interpretation I was looking at uh, that kind of sparked my interest was how this deals with post-war aspects like we talked about like the processing and the you know first 10 15 minutes of the movie but also there's this feeling of when these people when these men came home from world war ii they needed an enemy like and we kind of see that as the skeptics the authority like and that's what kind of kind uh gave us the mccarthyism we needed to find we put our sights on communism you know even though there were our friends they are now our mortal enemies because we are now we are can never undo the fact that we have enemies. Now everyone is our possible enemy. So it's this culture that comes from a huge war that encompasses everything. And we saw the same kind of thing occur, you know, post 9-11, uh, where you just get a culture that is like, we need to find a new enemy because this is crazy. <laughs> what enemies don't we know we, we need to be you know worried about? And this came from something that Paul Thomas Anderson said, which is that he read about a fact, and this was years ago, many, many years ago, but it started the kernel of this movie, which is that he read a fact about how cults uh, in post-war societies are a lot more popular. Like, that's just something that we've noted, mm. is that you'll get a lot of cults after, after war. People looking for answers. Yeah, people looking for answers, but also I think people... I think there's it's a wider implications that people need these kind of grappling, uh, you know, like, OK, so this is this is more cosmic. These are titans. These are impulses. These aren't just people. It's not just Hitler or Mussolini. It's enemies. Historical forces. Yeah, yeah. So we just need to know who the enemies are. And in this movie, it's obviously the skeptics. Uh, the authorities and the communists. He makes one or two. There's little references. Yep. He asks, he asks Joaquin if he's ever been a member of a communist party when he thinks he's might be his enemy. 
So they have picked their enemies. And the, just the overall, like most of what the um, most of what the cult does is test loyalty, right? Are you yeah. willing to go this far for us? Are you do you, are you, are we the most important thing to you? That's your Pig value. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, also, there's a web comic called Akewood that Abe and I love. Oh yeah, with a recurring bit where someone asks a character named Liebot, "What is the saddest thing?" <laughs> and I just want to do one now. Yeah. Liebot, what's the saddest thing? The saddest thing is a sailor making a sand woman to fuck and then a wave comes and it washes away. <laughs> it is Which the happens saddest in thing. It's the saddest, the saddest thing. saddest thing. A sailor. It's so pathetic. Uh, it's so pathetic, but also like you, you, uh, you just want to feel for the guy. He's so good at doing yeah. catharsis. Joaquin Phoenix, man. Even Gladiator. Uh, it's, there's something there. He's got a, yeah. he's, you got two people. Oh, he's special. Look no further than that processing scene. We've talked about it before, but it bears mentioning because it's like the linchpin scene of the movie. This scene 30 minutes in where we don't see Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's a one take shot on Joaquin as he gets questioned. And it is an acting masterclass tour de force Oscar worthy, like going from amused to invested to slowly being dismantled to crying. It's so good. Is and that kind of is something that I want to talk about, which could jumpstart us on how do you do that? Unless you got more, better. sure. Yeah. So our last sequ- uh, last little you know thing we got going here on this podcast is how do you do that? Where we talk about in this segment just some trivia, some like kind of tactics behind the scenes the stuff. filmmakers yeah. used in order to accomplish some of the feats in this movie. And that's one of the things that we see in this movie that he does a lot more than he does in other movies, which. I think he knew that he had like Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Adams are such impressive performers uh, and have such unique looks that it's just like you could watch them forever. So much of this movie relative to other movies in uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's career are entirely uh, I'll do a scene on his face, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and we see that. So no more than. Joaquin Phoenix like he that he's the guy who kind of owns this we're fascinated his face is magnetic yeah and it's just like you can see all of the it's not like there's no scene where it's like all right Freddie you're lying to yourself so typically how would you shoot that scene someone would say a statement that is actually indeed subtextually a lie and then someone would point that out and then someone and then we cut back to Freddie and he would start to break and be like, oh, actually, you know, like I was lying about that. So that's a basic sequence about how you take one thing and turn it into another thing. Not in this movie. This movie is just, you're going to have him slowly realize it himself. And off screen, you have the person just, you know, Asking saying the, the lines. So yeah. it's just one of those things that I think Paul Thomas Anderson knew that he had with his cast, but also is a highly effective way to examine cult because all of this is about convincing yourself. It's just very like smart in my opinion. And the movie is beautifully shot and lit uh, just all throughout, which is worth mentioning only because this is the first movie that he didn't have Robert Ellswit as cinematographer. Yeah. I, I didn't look up who it was, but they did a bangerang job. 
Robert Ellswood was too busy shooting the Bourne legacy. Oh, <laughs> the Bourne man. legacy instead of the master. Oh, man. Talk about a wake of regret. Ravi, Ravi. Uh, I'm man. sure he appreciated the paycheck. I mean, Bourne yeah, it's, it was probably the paycheck, yeah. <laughs> which I don't. I'm not going to throw any stink on that man. Uh, and yeah, the uh, cinematography here is pretty fantastic. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, I was ecstatic to see Jillian Bell in a tiny part, and I the only trivia I found out is that Paul Thomas Anderson was a big fan of Workaholics. <laughs> it's so good, he, which I yeah. I am an I'm a medium fan of Workaholics, but I'm a big fan of Jillian Bell in Workaholics specifically. Like I was obsessed yeah. with her for a little while. She's so great, and it's just like in There Will Be Blood. He had Paul F. Tompkins in a tiny role. Yeah, he likes comedians. He actually really likes stoner comedies. Uh, that's something mm. I found out about him. He came and talked to uh, at USC, and he kept making yeah. weed. I think he was high because he kept <laughs> making weed jokes. Like he's like, I used to be in Pas. I used to live in Pasadena, man. Pasadena, man. <laughs> I'm just like, what are you from? Dazed and confused. This is yeah. awesome. <laughs> Fast times at Ridgemont High. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I got the boat. The aletheia is uh, oh, the Greek word for truth. It, it comes from the prefix a uh, meaning not and lethe meaning oblivion. So it literally translates to oblivion. unforgetfulness, unforgetfulness, which is uh, what they do. They record everything and they remember their past lives. Well, that's kind of cool. And yeah. it's also very perfect for, you know, the kind of highfalutin self-sucking that <laughs> right. God does. The, that it means the truth. The boat yeah. is called the truth. Um, something that I read that I thought was interesting is that just in terms of process, again, Paul Thomas Anderson would have Amy Adams, uh, come to the set, uh, when she was not scheduled to appear, uh, in order to just have her be there, like have her presence felt. And she would say often until I watched the movie, I didn't know how much I was in it. Like she was like the way that he shot was such that like, I knew that there were some scenes, obviously the camera's on me, mm -hmm. but like, I don't know if it's wide. I don't know if it's anything like I'm just supposed to be here acting. So it sounds like there is a really intense, like that's a way that like Cassavetes was really well known for working where you'd just be like, all right, everyone, we're a big family. He would, you know, have these crazy rehearsals that, you know, with, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks before they'd even shoot where everyone was basically, you know, thick as thieves. And then they would just go shoot and everyone would be there all day. Uh, and it's just one of those things where I think that that's what, that's not a process that Paul Thomas Anderson did for any other movie. And I think the aspect of cultism uh, was, it felt probably necessary for him to do. And I thought that that probably yeah. affected a lot of the performances by people. You feel like there's a really lived in world here. Well, yeah. And speaking of method and cultism, the I didn't know that Joaquin Phoenix's family grew up in a cult, the Children of God cult, and then escaped it. So in a way, like Joaquin, it's, it's a party was born to play. He had so much to draw upon. Right. It really mirrored his life. It was like destiny. Um, another first for this movie that I maybe only I will find fascinating, but. There was, I didn't look to see what was the film before, but this came out in 2012. So it must've been, you know, uh, it must've been like 1996 or yeah, 95 or something like that. 
This film was the first film in 16 years to mostly be shot in 65 millimeter, which is projected in 70 millimeter, which became in vogue for a while until like IMAX took it over. So if you just track me here in the late or the early 2010s, we had this movie and then a bunch of people said like, let's shoot 65. And like, I'm not saying that IMAX wouldn't be here. I think IMAX is, was just going to, is, was inevitable anyway. Obviously you probably most, most of America watched it in 35, but, or even in digital, but it's just crazy how like it caused like a whole bunch of Trans. movies yeah. to do that and then that That's kind cool. of turned into and like an imx craze like it's like we i think that we kind of got acclimated to the width of that kind of uh format and then we're just like hungry for it um yeah and i saw that they were very light on color grading and they were very light on effects generally because they wanted to maintain yet the, that 65 millimeter yet look. the palette is insanely can like obviously you know dynamic yeah obviously we have some top tier craftspeople working on this and it's, you know, the production design is insane. Everything is kind of with these blue highlights and it kind of feels like a lighter punch drunk love in terms of its, you know, approach, um, mm. little less darkness, um, kind of, a serious man esque, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Movies. Mm. Uh, last one I got sad one, bad one. <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman had his first drink in 23 years at the rap party of this film, leading to a total relapse of his addiction issues. So this movie killed Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's, that's an official thing that happened. It was a, it was a step on the road. That's rough. I didn't know that. Well, RIP Philip. Yeah. 10 years ago now. Can you believe it? Uh, You were, you were. As of like a week ago. A bright star, man. That shit. This movie might be one of his best. Definitely. Yeah. It's up there. Yeah. It might be his best. There's a lot of contenders with a, you know. Actor like that. A performer yeah. like that. Love well, Liza comes to mind. Do you ever see that? Uh, yeah. Unreal. Unreal. I mean, even, even the stuff that I'm like, I don't. I'm not like. Even the movies, I'm not like, oh, the, he he's fantastic. Like he's he's fantastic in that, but I like I don't love the movie. Yeah, the movie's uh, whatever, still, but his performance yeah. is off the charts. Yeah, and then there's you know like little lesser known films that that people should check out. Like uh, what's the Lumet? Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. I need to rewatch that one. In which he kills a heroin addict because he's so disgusted by the idea of heroin addiction, which is just. Which- chilling wild. <laughs> yeah yeah that's wild that that's what happened yeah um yeah man i don't have any more for how do you do that all righty so i think we're fucking putting on our jetpacks and getting time the fuck to out determine who is the master and who is the freddy <laughs> oh yeah we'll do, we, do that on we, our own time no write <laughs> yeah, in and tell us who's the, sh- the master yeah <laughs> who's, the who's, master? who's got master vibes between the two of us we, as we do with every podcast we mm-hmm. determine at the end uh well yeah this is a pleasure i love doing all these with you as we mentioned moonrise kingdom is up next so we'll be a west it will be a time for west and that will happen uh, in a month from now i'll see you there west heads i'll be defending him 
Don't you worry. He doesn't need to be defended. He's very popular. <laughs> this has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating. So make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash small beans. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.